You're listening to Farm to Tabor. If you've been fooling around in the food space for a while, you've probably heard something about one of the biggest problems in trying to fix the food system with certifications like fair labor and organic and food safety. Conflicts of interest. When a company gets a certification, the classic model is they just call up a company that does certifications, they schedule a date, send someone out, take a look, make a report, and the certification company, also known as the certifying body or CB, gives a certificate or not based on that report. That classic model that's very common right now is called third-party certification. When a food company does a checkup on itself, we call that first-party Uh, If the buyer is doing certification for themselves, like, say, Consumer Reports sends out people to check on food facilities and it reports that to its members, that's second party. And when a food company hires an outside certifier to do it for them, that's called third party. I've personally done a lot of third party auditing for food safety. They do do a lot of good. For a lot of operations, that's basically how they find out what modern food safety standards are. FDA and USDA are super under-resourced, so they're not really doing a lot of inspections or enforcement unless something really, really crazy happens, there's an emergency, and we have to go put out a fire. So, for the normal day-to-day stuff, um, often when a third-party auditor rolls up, sometimes that's the first place a facility finds out, like, oh, this place is super crusty, and we need to fix that for real. Uh, Third-party audits for food safety have, have done a lot to cut down on the number of outbreaks for that reason. At the same time, there are some huge problems with the third-party approach. It builds a market for diploma mills or certification bodies that will just certify anything. That's what happens when you build a system that puts the people who are being certified in charge of picking who's going to certify them and being the ones to write the checks. There's also the issue of these third-party certifications are based off a single one or two-day visit per year that's typically scheduled weeks or months in advance. That means that that operation can spend a few days getting spiffy for the audit, then as soon as the auditor leaves, let everything go. And as an auditor, this is always something that kind of worried me quite a bit. Is is what I'm seeing really representative? And the third thing, especially for fair labor audits, labor practices are nearly impossible to confirm as a third-party auditor. When you're just there for one or two days, all you've got to go by is verbal statements. And if management's the one writing the checks for this whole process, if their version of what's happening and the staff's version conflicts, management's take is the real one. So third-party auditing is, in my humble opinion, pretty much completely useless for checking on labor practices. But the great news is I am not the only person who's noticed this. There are big players in the labor and food retail sectors who saw all this tomfoolery going down and said, we need something way more solid than the same old third-party certification dance around. That's how the very first stirrings of the Equitable Food Initiative, or EFI, were born. So, Peter O'Driscoll, who's currently executive director of the EFI, is going to tell us how this updated, solidified approach to enforcing good sustainability, labor, and food safety practices in the food system works. Take it away, Peter. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Peter O'Driscoll. I'm executive director of Equitable Food Initiative. That's a job I've held for almost eight years now. Uh, My background for the last 35 years or so is mostly in international agricultural development. I've had the opportunity to work around the world, uh, focusing on the ways in which people grow and harvest food. And I guess I would say that's really my passion in life, is figuring out how to develop a global food system where the people who actually grow and harvest the food, get to share a little bit more in the value they're creating. Cool. So can you tell us a little bit more about EFI, what it is, what it does, and how it's different from other certifications? Sure. The Equitable Food Initiative is a skill-building and certification organization. We're working to uh, make the fresh produce industry a better work environment for the people who actually harvest the product. We're looking to raise the bar on food safety, and we're also concerned about uh, safer pest management, both for the workers and for the uh, environment. Mm -hmm. That's cool. So something that, you know, that really matches up with something I've been really interested in, which is um, 
in sustainable food, we talk a lot about, you know, using fewer pesticides, um, better soil management, those kinds of things. Um, pesticide use especially tends to affect workers more than it does consumers. So it always seemed to me like that would be a natural alliance. Um, I actually grew up, my dad worked in a nuclear power plant. And so I was kind of, you know, going to school and surrounded with people who are terrified of nuclear disasters. Um, cause that's kind of a normal thing to be worried about. Right. And, um, it was kind of funny because people would say things like these people build these plants and then they don't care what happens. And I was like, what do you mean they don't care what happens? We live here. <laughs> you know, if that thing goes like my dad is among the first people who's getting incinerated. Right. So we have a really vested interest in making sure that it works. Um, you know, regardless of how you feel about nuclear power, the people doing a thing, you know, whether it's farming, whether it's energy plants, that kind of thing are the ones who are most vulnerable if it goes wrong. Um, so that's always seemed to me like a, a kind of natural team up that if consumers are really interested in making sure stuff goes right on the farm, they should probably talk to workers. And it seemed strange to me that people weren't doing that. So um, tell me a little bit more about how, I guess, EFI came about, how people actually made that connection and, and how it came about. Sure. And I think the, the key to connect here is, is that the pest management dimension is intimately related to the food safety dimension, which mm-hmm. is also intimately related to welfare of the folks who are doing the work. So, mm-hmm. you know, in a, a nutshell, the most important thing that distinguishes DFI from other certifications, I would argue, is that it's the multi-stakeholder collaboration across the fresh produce supply chain mm-hmm. uh, in the quest for new solutions to some of the vexing challenges the industry has faced for a long time. So EFI came together about 10 years ago as a discussion among uh, worker organizations, farm labor unions, uh, producers, mm-hmm. uh, retail buyers, and consumer organizations. And that, as you can tell off the bat, is a strange bedfellow uh, consortium of folks who have spent more time over the last 40 or 50 years fighting each other Mm -hmm. than they have working together. So the credit, I think, for EFI goes to some really visionary people in each of those sectors who came together and realized that the system as constructed was not really working for any of them in an optimal way. And that perhaps by uh, talking to each other, they could explore new approaches that might actually produce better outcomes for all of them. Mm -hmm. So the basic history of EFI is that those multi-stakeholder discussions took about three years. They were carefully facilitated given the obvious differences in opinion that exist among labor unions and and produce growers and, and retail buyers and consumer organizations. But thanks to the good faith and the trust that they were able to establish, they agreed by 2011 that they wanted to launch a program. And I was hired in 2011 uh, to build that program, essentially as the first employee of EFI. Mm-hmm. I'd be happy to tell you more about what that program actually involved. Cool. Yeah, so I'll take a quick break here. It sounds like there is a little bit of commonality between EFI and CIW, which, I mean, for listeners who aren't familiar, that's Coalition of Immokalee Workers. That was a worker and retailer partnership that was made in Florida to combat human trafficking because they had some serious human trafficking problems down there on farms. And instead of trying to to just go, hey, bosses, please behave, they went above their heads and partnered with retailers to get the retailers to kind of enforce those rules. Um, so it sounds like EFI may have like kind of drawn from some similar techniques. So there are definitely some similarities uh, between EFI and CIW, but some pretty important differences mm-hmm. as well. Um, I can the, the similarities, I think, uh, spring from an obvious desire to improve wages and working conditions for farmers, mm-hmm. uh, farm workers, um, as well as a recognition that in order to, to bring those kinds of changes about, you need to look at the entire value chain mm-hmm. and particularly the predominant role that the retail sector pays, right? Mm-hmm. The decisions that are made by buyers mm-hmm. um, around who they're going to buy from and what kinds of standards they're going to require those producers to uphold are really what drive uh, the opportunity either for positive change and a race to the top in the produce industry or in the worst case scenario that really perpetuates some of the unfortunate behavior that we've seen uh, in certain areas of the industry. So CIW has done a tremendous job in Florida, particularly in the tomato industry around Immokalee, 
by shining a bright light on some of the really unfair labor practices that were there, and by uh, establishing agreements around standards for worker welfare uh, that engage buyers in making buying decisions that support the farms that actually abide by their fair food program standards. So in that respect, sure, there's uh, there's a lot of similarities. I think there's some important differences as well that I'm sure CIW would point out uh, as well. Um, EFI focuses not just on worker welfare, but also on food safety and pest management. So our standard in that respect is broader. Mm -hmm. I think CIW would also insist that theirs is very much a worker-driven model, Mm -hmm. whereas EFI's multi-stakeholder approach really tries to speak and maintain a balance across the interests of workers, growers, retailers, and consumers. And that's a different orientation. Um, And... uh, you know, one, one that I think is, is worth pointing out. Right. So I'd love to go into a little bit more. I guess we've talked some about how it doesn't work, um, but how it does work. And I think just really quick for listeners, I think the the model we're most accustomed to is, is kind of like organic certifications. That's called a third-party model where a farm says, hey, I want to be certified organic, so let me call up an organization that does that. It can be a nonprofit. It can be a business. You come send an inspector. You check it out. And then you issue a certificate or you don't. Um, that's the model I think most of us are kind of most accustomed to. So tell us a little bit more about how EFI actually works. It's probably going to be different from that. Yeah, that's right. And, and if you think about what brought that strange bedfellow multi-stakeholder consortium together 10 years ago, it really did have to do a lot with the recognition that the, the audit and inspection system that the produce industry had been relying on for some years still had some important gaps, mm-hmm. right? Um, <clears throat> listeners will be familiar with the 2006 E. coli outbreak in spinach, mm-hmm. which really got the attention of the produce industry and ushered in a lot of third-party inspection mm-hmm. and standards around food safety. Mm-hmm. And typically what that meant was uh, retailers or private third-party certification schemes would come up with standards, rigorous standards, credible mm-hmm. standards, and then they would uh, audit growers to those standards. Uh, And essentially what you get from a traditional third-party audit is what we would call a snapshot Mm -hmm. of the conditions on the farm on the day the auditor was there. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, those those audit reports don't really tell you much about what was happening on the farm three weeks before or two months after the audit Mm -hmm. uh, because all the auditor can do is capture the conditions that obtain on the day of the audit. So one of the, the main drivers for this strange benefellow consortium at EFI was how do you get beyond that snapshot problem? How does the buyer know whether the food is safe three or four weeks after the audit? Um, of course, everybody, any one of us who, who understood we were going to be audited would, would clean up and behave and do our best to, uh, to make a good impression. Mm-hmm. But the question really is what, what conditions prevail year-round or throughout the season on an operation? Mm-hmm. And so the great insight of EFI was the recognition that the farm workers themselves are the ones who are closest to the product at the point of production. They know the product, they understand the system, and if they can be both trained and incentivized to recognize common, simple threats to food safety at the point of production, they can play a huge role in the prevention and mitigation of food safety threats. Yes, So think about the kinds of things that create salmonella or E. coli or listeria outbreak. They typically have to do with things like um, animal droppings or bird droppings. Mm-hmm. So much produce is grown out of doors. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they have to do with the sanitary uh, facilities or the sanitary conditions that are available to workers. Are there toilets? Is there soap and hand washing facilities? Mm-hmm. Do workers have access, for example, to paid sick days or do they show up at work and harvest product when they're sick. These are all, uh, these, these are not the province of microbiologists, right? <laughs> We're not about training farm workers to be uh, microbiologists. What we are doing is encouraging labor management collaboration and training mm-hmm. so that workers themselves understand the very common, uh, often simple measures that they can take either to prevent foodborne illness in the first place or to recognize the threats when they see it during the hop. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's so interesting that you kind of mentioned this stuff, because I don't know if I told you, but I actually worked for a number of years as a third-party food safety auditor, and <laughs> I 
Like you yeah. mentioned, there's that whole That's issue. With, yeah, like you mentioned, there's that whole issue of we can only audit what we see on the day that we're there. And the likelihood that farms were kind of sprucing up for your visit and then just kind of doing whatever afterwards and before haunts you, right? Um, <laughs> you're always kind of wondering, like, yeah, it looks good today, but you always kind of wonder what's happening the rest of the time. Um, and I would think to myself, you know, who would be better at checking this is, like you said, people who are here all the time. So this is actually something yeah. that as a third-party food safety auditor, um, I was like, man, why don't people do that? Little did I know EFI existed this whole time. So anyway, it's just so nice to have you here. <laughs> well, it, it didn't exist the whole time. It may not have existed while you were doing that work. But I will say that one of the real visionaries behind this project was uh, Jeff Lyons, mm-hmm. who's an executive vice president of Fresh uh, Products at Costco Wholesale. Yes. And what Jeff would often say is, uh, I get these food safety audits all the time. They mm-hmm. tell me what was happening the day of the audit. But if I could have 400 sets of eyes and ears in the field every day looking out for my product, I would feel a lot more assured mm-hmm. about the safety of that food. And mm-hmm. I think the other key point that Jeff would make consistently was that those men and women who are providing that additional vigilance, that mm-hmm. oversight of his product, deserve to be rewarded for. And so really the grand bargain uh, that drives EFI is that on the one hand, if you can train and uh, train workers to take more uh, responsibility, assume more responsibility in identifying and addressing threats to food safety, at the same time, you also need to reward them for that additional responsibility. And right. so uh, I can go into a little more detail about how we built a program around that. But if I can, I'd like to make one more point. Yeah. You talked about uh, having been a third-party auditor, and you've raised some, some questions about the value of that system, and I think we've agreed that you know one of the core challenges uh, around the, the audit system is that it can only capture what the auditor can see on a given day. Mm-hmm. I think there's another challenge as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are a, uh, a producer, you actually are audited all the time. Um, anybody who's growing produce in the United States, for example, is required to have food safety audits that are accredited to the Global Food Safety Initiative, but they're also required to meet uh, different specifications and codes of conduct and standards that are set by their different retail customers. Mm-hmm. So what the growers experience is that they, they have a lot of disconnected audits, in other words, multiple audits, some as many as 30 in a given year, yep. from different sources that are not connected in any way to each other, mm-hmm. that uh, demand a tremendous amount of time and energy from the staff, mm-hmm. but from the perspective of the grower, create absolutely no value. There's no, I mean, you, you have to pass the audit, it's a license to do business with your customer, mm-hmm. but the audit it process itself really doesn't create any value for the grower. And that's another very real problem that EFI tried to solve. Mm-hmm. So our basic premise is, if you're going to train and incentivize workers to identify uh, labor issues and pest management issues and food safety issues on the farm, there has to be some added value for the grower as well. And for, from EFI's perspective, that comes in two forms. Mm-hmm. The most important form is that workers who are given skills around conflict resolution and problem solving, that they apply to food safety and labor management and uh, labor and pest management, can also apply those very same skills to solving bottom line profit and loss challenges for the farm. We have loads and loads of examples in which the teams that we train on farms for compliance with our standards are also helping their employers solve business problems that make their operations more efficient. Mm-hmm. At a time when there's a major labor shortage in the produce industry, we're finding that the farms that where we train are finding solutions to retention and recruitment that are lowering their costs. So the bottom line for EFI is that auditing or at least social uh, compliance programs have to create some value beyond compliance. And um, we believe that this kind of labor management collaboration model that we have developed provides real value to the growers over and above the license to sell that comes from a certification. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah. And that goes along with a couple of things that I had started to see as I was working as a third-party auditor, which was um, 
And no one ever talks about this, right? But the farms that invested the most in their people, um, you know, training, uh, obviously pay is probably in there somewhere, um, bonuses for time spent on the job. So these companies that are investing more in their people obviously have better retention and they would get better results. They would get higher productivity per hour. So even though they're investing more in their workers, they're making more money. And that was something that you would see repeatedly when you're out there working in agriculture. And the farms that don't do that are always like, we can't find enough people and nothing works. Um, and it was starting to make me a little bit crazy because the conventional wisdom is, you know, companies shortchange investment in their staff and their workers because it makes you more money. And it became very clear to me that it does not make you more money. Uh, <laughs> and right. so, yeah. No, and, it's, it's a, I, don't think, I don't think that insight is unique to agriculture, by the way. But no, let's, let's yeah. run with it. Yeah. I think for decades now and, and arguably even for centuries, um, there was a tremendous incentive not to invest in your workforce because there was an abundant and therefore a very cheap workforce that was available to you. So for decades, growers could cut corners if they wanted to. Uh, if workers didn't like low wages, they could leave because there were folks to take their place. We're in an interesting moment right now in the produce industry, and I would argue not just here in the United States, but even in Mexico, because uh, we work a lot with Mexican producers as well. Mm -hmm. There is a tremendous labor shortage. Mm -hmm. Some of it has to do with immigration enforcement here in the United States. Some of it has to do with demographics, right? There's an yeah. aging farm worker population, mm -hmm. and for lots and lots of reasons, their kids are not following them into the field. Yeah, well, the number um, of people entering Mexico. the number of people entering the United States to work on farms has been going down since 2008. So, like this has Absolutely. been going, this has been coming for a long time. Yes, it has, and and it's not just that there are fewer people coming in. Uh, the workers that are coming in increasingly are coming in under guest worker programs like the H-2A visa program. Mm -hmm. And the United States is now competing for Mexican workers through the guest worker program with uh, the increase in jobs in agro-export production in Mexico. Mm -hmm. So the squeeze is on, on, on all kinds of levels. Um, and essentially what that means is the point you just made that the companies that invest in their workers actually end up being more profitable because precisely because they can be more efficient, they can save on recruitment and retention. They have a loyal and engaged workforce that is actually creating more profit value for them. That insight is now much more widely understood in the industry than it was even 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> EFI would like to help drive that insight into what we call a race to the top. Mm -hmm. um, from our perspective, we would say this, there's basically three kinds of growers in the industry. There are the ones who really do the right thing and treat their workers well and don't cut corners. Mm -hmm. And we think they are the ones who should get more business from the retail sector. Mm -hmm. There's a middle group of growers who recognize what you're saying and would like to do better, but for various reasons, uh, need support or tools or investment or something to improve their labor practices. And then there's a third group that will cut corners as long as they possibly can until someone forces them to do otherwise. Mm -hmm. And what we see uh, at this point is, is a real opportunity with the industry that's paying a lot of attention to labor these days to drive this kind of race to the top. Let's make sure that the major buyers are buying their product from those top-level growers. Let's make sure that the industry is supporting that middle group to improve their practices. And then let's stop doing business with the folks who are cutting corners, right? And if we can, if we can help the industry identify who's in those different groups and then really encourage them to, to spend their money where, you know, in alignment with the best practices of those producers, I think we can really help drive some very positive change in the industry. Right. And I think it's so, in a way, unsurprising that it's Costco leading the charge. Um, you know, anybody who's kind of familiar with, I guess, the wild world of retail knows that Costco is very on top of treating their workers well, you know, having higher pay, having vacation, investing a lot of training in them so they can be productive so then they can afford to pay them a lot. It's not just an issue of paying people a lot. It's um, structuring the, the way your entire business works to make that possible, right? Um, and Costco, That's right. Yeah, and Costco's are always really been on the forefront of that, and they've always been on the forefront of food safety, I think, for related reasons, which is um, the company is not busy putting out fires, and so they can focus on actually being constructive and kind of like leading the industry in, in food safety. Um, 
You've got other retailers like uh, Starts with a P, Ends with Oblix that are viciously anti-union and have actively fought moves like this. Like um, Publix refuses to recognize Coalition of Immokalee Workers, for example, Um, because their main priority is just we don't want anything that looks, smells, acts like a union at all. That's a lot more important to them than making sure that farms that they're buying from work correctly, right? Um, So it's, it's so unsurprising to me that this is coming out of Publix. This is so in line with their M.O. and... I should really be on the public's payroll for saying this, but I, or excuse me, the Costco payroll for saying this. Um, but uh, I don't know. That's on me. I'm not. Well, as, as you say, <laughs> the, the, in, the internet, the internet is full of stories of, um, you know, the ways in which Costco takes care of its employees and is rewarded by, mm-hmm. uh, you know, longevity uh, in their employee base. It's pretty impressive. I think what's even more impressive though, uh, is their commitment to making sure that the people in their supply chain, mm-hmm. Uh, are treated with the same respect that uh, their own employees are. So Mm -hmm. there's no question that they've been a driver in this process, but I think it's really important to say that Costco has no intention of uh, having EFI seen as a Costco project. I think uh, Costco has taken a tremendous leadership role. There's no way we could have piloted our methodology or engaged the number of suppliers that we have to date if it weren't for Costco's leadership. But EFI and Costco would both like to see uh, more retailers engaged in this. And I think it is, as I say, there is a moment in the industry. uh, You're probably familiar with uh, a really important series that was published at the end of 2014 in the Los Angeles Times called Product of Mexico. And it shone a very bright light on working conditions in the agro-export sector in Mexico. And uh, it followed the supply chains from the farms where those uh, abuses were happening to the shelves of the major retailers in the United States. They got a lot of attention. And uh, as a result of that article, uh, a whole series of committees uh, were created across the produce industry that culminated last year in 2018 with the publication of what is called the Ethical Charter on Responsible Labor Practices. And this is really an industry-wide commitment to uh, upholding uh, a series of principles around uh, worker treatment, worker welfare, uh, fair wages, ethical recruitment, a whole series of issues. Um, And, you know, our position is it's a really uh, impressive document and impressive set of of principles, and now it's time to support the industry to actually implement those principles. So EFI is working at dialogue with a number of retailers about how it is we can help them actually implement uh, the, the principles, the commitments that are outlined in that mm-hmm. ethical chart. Yeah. And it's so interesting to me that you mentioned, you know, specific practices, right? You know, we kind of looked at what's happening in the supply chain and we found out these labor practices, you know, and these business practices actually make things better. Because something that I found, you know, just working with a lot of different farms is if you talk to a grower and you say, you know, what do you do to make sure that your workers are in good shape? And this has nothing to do with food safety. I would just ask because I was curious. Um, You know, they'll say the farms that are running really tight, you know, um, with high productivity will say things like, you know, um, we use an H2A crew and we... We allow our workers to refer somebody, but only one person. Because, you know, if they're referring a bunch of people, then they're probably charging money for those referrals. So that's kind of a human trafficking thing. Um, we go down to, uh, I can't remember which city. They're like, go to this city to recruit people. Go down yourself. Don't send, you know, a representative because they're going to charge people money, which, again, is human trafficking. Um, just all this stuff, like very specific things they're actually doing. And when you talk to growers... And you ask that same question, and it's one of those farms where nothing's quite working right, and you can just tell something's up. Um, Like, I don't know, like, if you've been working class and you've worked in a lot of different places, you can feel the morale and you know something's up (laughs) on certain operations, right? Um, So when when you ask the people running those operations, so what do you do? And they will say, well, we love our workers. And you say, well, what do you do? And they're like, they're like family to us. And I'm like, that's not what you do. You're telling me how you feel, but that has nothing to do with what you're doing, right? That has nothing to do with actual outcomes and consequences. Um, so that was something that, you know, for food safety reasons, we're always focused on outcomes. We don't ask people, like, how do you feel about washing your hands? We're like, do you do it, right? Um, you know, so that kind of taught me, like, always focus on what's actually happening more than what people say and how they feel. Um, and then kind of watching people 
talk the same way about worker relations, you know, even though that wasn't part of my purview. I was just kind of curious. I was trying to, like, kind of figure out how things were working. That was just something that always really stood out is you need to be focused on what, what you're doing, not how people feel and talk, right? So. That's right. But I think you, you, you put your finger on this human trafficking thing is, is an issue that the industry as a whole is really now having to come to terms with in a new way. And, and the bottom line is this. Um, I think there are a lot of really decent uh, producers out there who, who really do want to treat their workers with respect. Um, but it's a tight labor market, and they have, they're going to need help to go find workers. There are not enough workers in their immediate environment to, uh, to bring in the crop. And so they turn to programs like the H-2A program, which would bring workers from other countries, or they turn to programs uh, or to, to recruiters, right, farm labor contractors. And these are busy people. And they assume good faith on the part of, uh, you know, the recruiters who bring the H-2A workers or those who bring them from other parts of this country. And uh, as busy as they are, they don't necessarily have the opportunity to check, nor are those systems particularly transparent. And as we have dug into this issue, because we certify farms that say there is no forced labor. And in order for us to be able to prove that, we have to be able to follow the labor supply chain all the way back to the sending community. And the opportunity for recruitment violations exists along that chain. Right? Somebody drives into a village in Mexico and starts offering jobs in the United States, and people are excited and interested, and the wage rates are higher here, and, and then all of a sudden they find out, well, they're going to have to pay. They're going to have to pay for transportation. They're going to have to pay for paperwork. They're going to have to pay for um, really the right to get in the line for this job, right? And uh, in some cases in Mexico, those recruitment operations are tied to uh, cartels and organized crime syndicates. And so um, there are cases of workers paying anywhere from $1,000 to $5,000 or more in fees just to secure jobs in the United States. And that essentially makes them indentured servants when they get here because they have to work to pay off their debt before they can actually begin to accumulate uh, or save any of their wages. So this is uh, a problem that I think more and more people are aware of now. And it requires uh, clean recruitment solutions. Uh, We've seen some really positive examples of new recruiting organizations that can verify from the sending community that their workers are not paying any recruitment fees at all. And EFI is particularly interested in working with groups like them. Cierto Global is one of them. Um, Because when we see that the workers are coming through uh, a clean supply chain like that, um, we can certify with a lot more confidence that our standards are actually being met on the farms uh, where we work. Good. That's so good. Because there, there was a third-party audit that I saw once for responsible labor practices, and the way that they would verify there is no human trafficking was you're supposed to act the, ask the workers, like, are you getting paid? You know, like, you're supposed to ask workers to verify things and the employer. And I was like, this is useless. Uh, <laughs> you know? Well, put yourself in a position of a worker. Put yourself yeah. in a position of a worker who, who paid... $6,000 to mm-hmm. get that job. Mm-hmm. And it, of course, did not have $6,000. And what that meant was he borrowed money, presumably at some kind of exorbitant interest rate, or he gave the title to the land, the little bit of land that he owned in his sending community mm-hmm. to the recruiter. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if some well-intentioned auditor comes along and asks whether he paid recruitment fees to get that job, he will understand that if the answer is yes, he is likely or could well lose that job, and by losing the job, loses the means of paying back that debt. So the answer in those situations is almost certainly going to be no, I didn't, because of the tremendous fear they would have of losing the only means they have of paying that debt back over time. So the system is broken, and the only way to fix it is to ensure that there is absolute clean and ethical recruitment all the way from the sending community to the farm where the workers end up. Exactly. Yeah, it was really interesting because there was a lot of interest in these types of audits in the area where I live. You know, there's a lot of sweet potato farming. That's all hand labor. They're picked by hand. Um, So this is a big destination for trafficked labor. And um, so they're starting to do these third-party audits for for fair labor practices, right? And I looked at them, and they're kind of 
you know, this would be a good work opportunity because I can make a lot more money. I can do several of these in a day. I don't have to travel like to California like I would have to do for a lot of food safety work. Um, but I looked at the audit and I was like, this thing is useless. <laughs> you know, like I'm not doing this. You know, this is this is clearly just like this is a whitewash. I'm not doing this. Um, so that was really troubling right. to watch. Um, the main how, do you, how, do you de- how do you determine whether a set of standards is a whitewash or whether it's credible? And mm. from, from our perspective, you know, it, it, the credibility that we would claim is that our standards, we have now 326 standards covering labor, food safety, and pest management, mm-hmm. were hammered out over the period of three years by representatives from across the supply chain, from the worker organization through the producers and retailers to the consumer advocates who wanted to make sure that those standards worked for every step of the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, standards, you know, so we started with a set of standards as we rolled out the program in 2011, 2012, and we have updated those standards since then, um, as we have been learning by doing. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the you know the, the standards are really only as good as the participatory process that creates them. Right. Uh, if they're just thrown together quickly by an expert, uh, you know, they, I'm not going to say that they're not great. But the question <laughs> is, are those standards really going to protect all the people who have an interest uh, right. in the certification that results? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's why I'm really glad to hear that they're actually going back to like the home community. Um, and just kind of covering that entire supply chain. Because once people leave home, you know, like, it's kind of too late to ask if they're being trafficked or not, right? Um, Trying to. Yeah. So that, that's, I'm really glad to hear that. Um, the main labor contractor in this area um, was involved in a lot of trafficking slash trafficking adjacent stuff a few years ago. And it was, it was in the news. And so it's really interesting to me to, um, the name of it sounds like a nonprofit, Right. So growers hire people through this group thinking like, oh, it's a nonprofit that people set up to make everyone happy and it's working great. And they have, I don't know how they don't know because it was all over the news. This place was trafficking people. Um, but I think to some extent there's some willful, willful ignorance. Um, right. Because, I mean, this it's really easy to say like, oh, this is the South, right? You know, there's like sharecropping was within living memory. Serena Williams' dad was a sharecropper. Um, a lot of these folks are already accustomed to working with trafficked and otherwise captive labor. Like that's what feels normal to them. Um, <laughs> but I've also I've, I've seen some weird, shady stuff happening in upstate New York too. So I don't want to say like, oh, it's just the South. It's just like this all the time. Like that's agriculture in the U.S. in general. There's um, I feel like a lot of the reason recruiters exist. It's not just to do the work of finding and bringing people. It's also to provide plausible deniability. You know, I feel like that is definitely some of the role that's being provided there. So labor contracting in general, is, it's a little sketchy to me, but again, like I'm just really glad that people are actually looking at it from, you know, like from home to the actual workplace instead of just asking people, are you traffic? Cause that never works. So absolutely. I mean, it is well established uh, in history and in legal documentation that, that uh, as you say, there's been a tremendous amount of forced labor in the history of us agriculture. Now, Here's the question. There are, there, are, there are folks who will be absolutely delighted for the purposes of plausible deniability to, to don't ask, don't tell. Mm-hmm. But what do you do if you're a decent person who actually does want to make sure that uh, your work is on traffic? Where do you turn? Exactly. Um, and yeah. frankly, there aren't a lot of options. You know, I referenced earlier our partnership with some ethical recruitment organizations, but there aren't a lot out there. Mm-hmm. One of the things that EFI has done is develop something we call the Responsible Recruitment Tool, which is essentially a risk assessment tool for any supplier in the industry who wants it. You can download it off our website um, with a list of the questions you should be asking your recruiter or your the, the various options if you're selecting among different recruiters mm-hmm. that would help you assess which of them is more or less compliant with rules and standards and human decency mm-hmm. uh, based on their answers. So um, it is by no means a perfect system, but in an industry that is really crying out for better uh, options when it comes to recruitment, precisely for the decent suppliers to avoid uh, unethical recruits, we're hoping that um, that more and more folks in the industry will actually start to, to use this tool, and as they use it, we can refine and improve it. Um, but that it will begin to build a consciousness of the kinds of questions that suppliers should be asking 
uh, due to their responsibility, the joint responsibility that they assume when they bring recruited workers onto their farms, right? For, as you say, for too long, uh, folks were willing to say, well, look, it's not my fault, it's not my responsibility, the recruiter did it. It's really, really important, as our standards have firm, um, that employers take responsibility for, for how the workers they employ got there. Yeah, exactly. And and like you mentioned, if you're trying to do the right thing, how do you do the right thing? Which is a fantastic question. Um, something that I found that was really counterintuitive was out in the field. Um, <clears throat> so that kind of how we talk about agriculture is it's the big corporate places that are, you know, doing human trafficking because corporate is bad. Human trafficking is bad. They must go together. And I'm, I'm certain that to a large extent that is true, right? But it was really interesting to me that the places that I ran into that had really tight um, like really, you know, they're actually using practices to make sure that things are going well were bigger family farms that you would probably call corporate, right? There were several hundred acres, um, very professionalized, uh, name brands you would recognize in the store kind of places. It wasn't the mom and pops, right? Um, and when I say mom and like a family farm that you would call a corporate farm, the vast majority of so-called corporate farms, like for listeners who may not be aware of this, the vast majority of corporate farms in the U.S. are actually still family-owned, right? They're just bigger. Um, so it was really interesting to me that it was like this corporate farm that had the tightest labor practices. Like, they actually went down and did their own recruiting. They didn't hire someone else to do it. Um, and it was the small family operations, like the small mom and pops, who were most dependent on these labor uh, recruiters and contractors because um, human trafficking and just kind of hiring whoever is easy. And, um, like, there's a pipeline to make that labor very accessible. Like, that's the business model is making it easy to find people. That's how human trafficking works. Um, And actually doing it right and taking care of that supply chain yourself is hard. So it was the bigger, more resourced, more corporate places that were doing it right. And it was the small family operations who were most dependent on these really sketchy labor sources, which was really interesting to me to watch. And that's why I think it's really cool that things like EFI are out there to kind of try and and kind of make good labor more accessible. Well, look, it stands to reason that there would be economies of scale for larger operations to have dedicated staff whose job it was to pay more attention to that recruitment. Right? Exactly, yeah. It, it, um, it, it, I mean, there's a lot of argument pro, con, and in between uh, for larger versus smaller farms. I don't see any value in trying to reconcile them now, but I can tell you that, for example, the EFI program is much more suited to the certification of large operations than small, um, precisely because smaller operations uh, have less available resources to invest in training their workers, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's not as if we haven't piloted different ways in which we can aggregate a, a group of smaller farms to, to provide training in that way. And we'll continue to try to innovate in that way. But I do, I do want to be clear that the EFI model, which is based on what we call the creation of leadership management teams that we train intensively uh, over the course of about 40 hours in conflict resolution and communication skills and problem-solving skills and the, the content of our standards and then their ongoing responsibility for identifying compliance issues with those standards and using their problem-solving skills to fix them. It's a powerful model, um, but, you know, the teams that we train are typically 12 to 18 people with representation from across the workforce on a farm. That's a much, much more uh, cost-effective opportunity if you're on a farm that hires 500 workers than it is if there are 10 workers. Uh, and, you know, it was a conscious choice, I think, on EFI's part because from the very beginning, we wanted to make sure that we were extending uh, benefits and protections to the largest number of workers possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are more workers on those large farms uh, than on the smaller farms. Uh, and, you know, as I say, the model made it much easier to reach them at an early stage of the game. Uh, but, but down the road, you know, the goal is not simply to... Um, exclude workers on smaller farms and and as you say a lot of people uh, for all sorts of good reasons want to support small and local farms don't realize scale issue makes it harder for them to provide the kinds of benefits and protection and due diligence uh, that that would prevent labor abuse Um, 
so yeah, there um, there there is no silver bullet in the food system, is my experience after thirty odd years looking for one. Right. Yeah, I feel like that's that's kind of a shorthand that that folks often try and use as is small is good, big is bad, and it's just in my experience, it hasn't ever quite penciled out that way. It's a lot more like reality is just always a lot more complicated than that. And that's, you know, like you mentioned, this is this is often how change in the agricultural industry unrolls is it's the bigger places that adopt it first. So now there are labor contractors that follow those rules. So now smaller places can plug into that system. And that's just often how change kind of unrolls. Well, let's hope. I think we still have a long way to go, but you have to start with successful models and you have to be able to demonstrate that the, the models that you are offering are cost effective. So uh, I know that for the recruitment organizations that we partner with and for EFI ourselves, uh, the goal really is to scale because with scale will come the kinds of economies that will enable us to demonstrate that the investment required in training and auditing is actually something that pays for itself uh, over time. Right, yeah. Well, it was really interesting with food safety. Again, you, you always are aware that you're not catching everything, but we definitely did catch a lot of stuff. Um, and it was really interesting to talk to growers kind of their first year doing it versus their second, third, you know, fifth and tenth. Um, at first, everybody really hates getting food safety audits because they are obnoxious, um, objectively, and they're always obnoxious. Um, but once people have been doing it for a while, they kind of start to see the benefits. Like, I'm doing all this traceability so it's a lot easier for me if I have a problem on my farm or packing house to find out where I came from and fixed it. I wasn't able to do that before. Um, that was a big comment we heard a lot of the time. Uh, somebody found some employee thefts that were happening, like pallets worth of product because of the traceability system they were doing for food safety. Um, so once people start doing it for a while, they kind of start to see those other benefits that come from just running a tight system. And so it was, it was kind of cool to talk to people who'd been doing it for a while because they couldn't imagine doing it any other way, <laughs> you know. Um, the Wild West approach no longer appealed to them. So hopefully we'll get some of that, too, with EFI. That would be cool. Yeah, I hope so. And I mean, the, and let's not forget, the Wild West approach won't work for their retail customers either. And, yeah. uh, you know, as we said at the beginning, uh, there's no question that as the retail customer becomes more demanding, um, mm -hmm around compliance and the industry is essentially forced to adapt. As long as that's done in a respectful way and not simply imposed from above, uh, I think that can really help drive positive change. But if I can, I just, I just want to make one point that I think will make sense to you as a food safety auditor. Yeah. Um, you talk about how those systems improve over time, right? The first audit is hardest and then after a few years, the systems begin to adapt and change and find, folks find that um, you know, what is required of them to maintain a food safety certification is actually making them a better company. Yeah. Um, I would say that, that a lot of companies, when they approach this challenge, and particularly the big companies that have uh, the resources to do so, bring on some pretty uh, serious and important professional staff. They might, they might bring on a microbiologist to develop their food safety program to make sure that they pass their audit. And that person will have really good insights and so forth. But at the end of the day, uh, in any industry, I, mean, I often use the strawberry industry as an example, uh, you have to think about the way the entire industry is structured. You can't simply look at food safety in a vacuum mm -hmm. because you might have the best microbiologist in your staff and even the best system. But at the same time, if the workers that you're hiring are picking strawberries and come across a pile of deer poop in the strawberry field, mm -hmm. they still have to make a basic decision. Am I gonna pick these berries or not? Mm -hmm. You might pick the berries for a couple of reasons because you're, you haven't ever been really told about the microbiological dangers of, of feces on berries. <clears throat> um, you might just sort of not care and say that it's not your problem because you're paid to pick as fast as you can. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't get paid very much and you're just gonna keep picking. And by the way, if you raise your hand and stop picking and the whole line grants to a halt, the likelihood that you're gonna be able to fill the order that you have to fill by noon that day goes way down. Mm -hmm. So as good as your food safety practices are, as great as the microbiologist that you hired might be, if your fundamental production incentives work against raising your hand to stop production when there's a food safety threat, you haven't solved the problem. And that's why EFI insists on the relationship 
train that worker to spot food safety problems, that worker is also going to understand the importance of their own voice in addressing other forms of abuse, from sexual harassment to uh, exploitation to uh, to forced overtime, other kinds of things. The key really is giving workers the skills and the opportunity to voice their concerns and to speak from their expertise to create a very different culture on the farm, a culture of voice and agency and collaboration between labor and management, rather than what has all too often prevailed, which is a very sort of top-down, do what you're told and pick faster Mm -hmm. uh, mentality. Very, very different workplace culture. Right, yeah, and it's not just the culture. I do a lot of consulting now for food safety, and the culture side of the equation... um, Kind of, kind of helping the workers understand that here's the new culture, now we're going to do this, is not the most difficult part. The most difficult part is the management culture, right? So um, a culture yeah. of accountability for management. It's, it's not just about telling the workers you need to speak up and you can speak up. It's about telling management you need to listen. Um, and, and, and like you said, like not in a top-down, I guess, like here's what you're going to do kind of way, but that needs to be the world the management is living in is that there's some accountability. Like it, nothing really happens until that happens. So... That's another dimension that you find here. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And when when our business development team sits down with companies that are talking about starting the EFI certification process, we can now make that point very clearly. A number of the companies that first started out with us that helped us pilot and refine the process going back to 2012, 2013, 2014 yeah. found that the biggest turnover they faced was actually in the ranks of supervisors and microdomos because. In the previous culture, you got to be a supervisor precisely because of your ability to coerce or Mm -hmm. (laughs) cajole or encourage people to work faster. Whereas if you want workers to speak up, you need supervisors who are trained to listen Mm -hmm. and to take advice and to take suggestions and recommendations from their workers. And that's a very different skill set. So yeah, culture change, as you say, starts all the way at the top with managers who are receptive and open to the kind of input that the workers can give them that will make their operation more successful and all that. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, and it's, again, that's completely aligned with what I've seen as a food safety auditor. You know, just kind of working in that one dimension of sustainability is, um, I have a lot of questions about, <clears throat> you know, we, we had a, a period of a lot fewer food safety outbreaks, foodborne illness, and now we've we've had kind of a bunch in the last few years, and it's that could just be random. There's really no way to know for sure. But it did seem kind of interesting to me that these coincided with a period of a lot harsher immigration crackdowns, and um, a time period when if you're working on a farm, you are not going to be as confident in kind of saying we have a problem here. You know what I mean? Like I don't. Th- it doesn't feel like a coincidence to me. There's I don't think any way to ground truth that with the data, but it just really kind of sticks out to me. Well, it's a challenge that we face, right? Because we can't begin to document the number of foodborne illness outbreaks that we've prevented by training workers, right? You can't yeah. prove the counterfactual. Um, and I have to say, we're very clear that um, the time will come when there will be a, a food safety issue on a farm that we have certified because human enterprise is never perfect and mm-hmm. even well-trained and incentivized workers uh, or managers uh, can make a mistake. So. I don't think, as I said earlier, I don't think there's a silver bullet, though I do believe strongly that you can radically reduce the likelihood of that Mm -hmm. by shifting towards a culture of compliance, a culture of engagement. Um, And and again, I'll say this, for us that starts from the very first engagement on the farm because we won't certify a farm unless they're willing to create these leadership teams Mm -hmm. that include representation from across the farm. So just as EFI's multi-stakeholder governance includes farm worker unions and growers and retailers and consumer organizations. Every farm that's certified must have a leadership team that includes representation from every function on the farm. So Ooh. harvesters and crew chiefs and supervisors and irrigators and sprayers, uh, all the way to mayordomos and supervisors, to HR, to food safety, to farm management. All of them must be represented on that team. That team is trained in how to talk to each other and how to solve problems, and that team continues to be and essentially become, if you will, the compliance verification uh, resource between audits, right? They meet on a regular basis as workers or managers see challenges, they bring them back to that team. That team then has the responsibility to use their problem-solving skills. 
to address the concerns. I don't think anyone in the world would ever argue that after an audit uh, that you pass, your systems will be perfect forever. Things will go wrong every day. The question is, what happens when things go wrong? Do workers know or care? And do they respond? Do they bring those issues to the attention of management? And are there people on management uh, or in this labor management leadership team with the skills to actually listen carefully and address those problems in a timely way? So that's very much the vision that we have for a well-functioning farm, which, as you can tell immediately, is not so different from any well-functioning workplace. Mm-hmm. It does require that there are channels for communication, uh, for grievances, for brainstorming, uh, that, that really bring out the best in the skills of the workers across the operation. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, and that's, again, you know, just for food safety, that's kind of something we have to do is um, you'll get different departments kind of going. You'll have the people doing production actually making the food or, you know, processing the food. You have people doing maintenance. You have people doing uh, the pesticides. And they don't always talk to each other. And it's, it's kind of funny because if, if you have a very small farm, you don't get this kind of siloing because there just aren't enough people. And I think that might be why people have decided that they are inherently superior is, you know, that's one organizational aspect of it. But you can also avoid siloing by just talking to each other, right? Um, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's always been kind of surprising how much people don't talk to each other unless you kind of make a situation where they have to do it. And then once people are sharing information, then everything works a lot more smoothly, Um so, yeah, I don't know. That's that's definitely something we see just in just on the food safety side. And, you know, I've I've really, you know, before knowing the EFI existed, just really wish that there was something that did both food safety and labor, because I just always saw that you can't really do one without the other. Um, we had a lot of farms where you're talking, you're supposed to talk to the workers in the audit. Right. And you can just tell that they were scared. And you never know exactly why. Sometimes it's just because they're new to the U.S. and they're kind of freaked out. And sometimes it's because, like, there's a reason, right? Um, yeah. So, like, you could you could often sense that. And, again, it, it tended to be more common on the farms that weren't really clicking for a lot of reasons. Um, I would kind of tell people, like, you never go into a farm or a food facility and you're like, wow, it was so well run. It was so well organized, except for all the rats, Right. Um, if, if it's not, (laughs) if it's not clicking in one dimension, it's probably not clicking in the other dimensions too. Like if there's a labor problem, there's probably also food and worker safety problems, um, because they kind of all come from the same place of just chaotic and like management just wants to do what they want to do and there's no accountability. Right. Um, yeah. So I just, I always kind of wished I was like, you know, we're doing our audits and they work pretty good. But I know they would work a lot better if they were a labor component to it. So I'm just so glad that someone else noticed. It's very validating. <laughs> yeah, you're not the only one. You're not alone. Now you can help us figure out how do we spread that gospel more broadly through the industry. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, I, I think Costco is going to do their magic, right? Um, like, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think the Primus GFS food safety audit was also very much kind of a Costco project. And that has gone all over the place. Um, that's a standard one that everybody uses now. So hopefully, um, EFI will have a lot of the same trajectory and, uh, yeah. Well, that's what we're hoping. And we're hoping that Costco, uh, you know, Whole Foods is working closely with us on this, on, on this project as well. And we're, yeah. we're hoping that other retailers will engage uh, more publicly as that negotiation go on. So, yeah, I think there's a huge opportunity here. Let's just remember fresh produce is something all of us should be eating more of. It's a good thing. It's an industry that people should feel good about. Um, it gets a black eye uh, every time there's a recall, and it certainly gets a black eye in an expose about labor abuse. <laughs> yeah. Our position is there are folks out there who are doing that thing who should be recognized by the marketplace. Uh, we want to support more and more companies to get into that category. Mm-hmm. We want to remind consumers and retailers to stop doing business with folks that can't demonstrate their ability to live up to those highest food safety labor and best standards. Right, for sure. Yeah, again, like that was just something that always started to drive me wild was I think the general impression is it's it's harder to run a business. Actually treating your labor right makes everything worse and less profitable. And in real life, in my experience, it was so much the opposite. And it just, it kills me every time people say, like, you know, all these problems exist because of profit motives. And I'm like, they don't make more money. That's not what's going on here, right? Um, It really kind of comes down to, like, I don't know how to explain it, but just, like, emotional and and kind of, like, um, 
yeah, just like emotional stuff. It doesn't have anything like when you invest more in your people and, and in your operation, you make more money. That is how it works, right? So it just makes me crazy that yeah. we, yeah, it's it's very much an emotional thing to not invest in workers, and so that's that's almost more scary, well, I think. <laughs> but yeah, it well, I, I choose to. I, I believe firmly in the power of example, so I think yeah. our goal is very much through our certification to hold up companies that are doing the right and yeah. that are profitable as a function of the investment they make in their workforce. And ideally, uh, if more and more business flows in the right direction to those kinds of companies, the other companies will be challenged or encouraged, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to, to adopt similar practices. So, you know, there's uh, a lot of talk for all sorts of obvious reasons in the global economy about the race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, we believe there's an opportunity in produce to create a race to the top, but we want to be part of that solution. That's so great. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, look forward to, to talking again in the future as we expand. That was Peter O'Driscoll talking about his work with EFI and kind of de-siloing the food system in some really productive ways. And I really hope this takes off. Thanks for listening. Farm to Taper out.